Welcome to the latest FT Advisor podcast. My name is Simini Kiriakou, editor of Financial Advisor, and today we're talking about teenagers, while well, specifically 18-year-olds as the first child trust fund babies have started to come into their money as they turn 18 this month. Well, while few lucky teenagers will have enough to buy a Lamborghini, although if their parents did put the maximum amount in each year and the fund growth was high enough, they might have enough for a second-hand roadster, Still, thousands of children will be coming into four or even five-figure sums of money. That's a lot of responsibility for an 18-year-old, given the majority of 18-year-olds are still borrowing a tenner off their mums to buy a Nando's or working extra shifts at TGI Fridays to afford petrol. Of course, teenagers are not all profligate spenders. Um, the majority of teenagers I know, and I know a lot because I've done a lot of youth work, they're really quite sensible with their money. Um, but while their eyes might light up at the prospect of getting the latest games console with their newfound wealth, I'd say the majority of them will be thinking about how to use it sensibly, such as supporting themselves during their apprenticeships or helping to fund their college education. But what potential drawbacks might there be to managing this money and making it last? And what if they want to keep it invested? Where should they keep it invested? Earlier this month, figures from Vanguard pointed out that although fund management charges have fallen significantly since 2005 when the wrapper was first introduced, the impact of fund charges on CTF money can still be significant. For example, if they invested £1,000 of their CTF money for another 10 years in an investment that generated 5% but charged 2%, they could expect to get you know, just over £2,000. But if they invest it in a low-cost fund charging 0.35%, they could have received an extra £380 worth of growth. And that's assuming, of course, there is fund growth. Otherwise, the charges just erode what they have. So, but if they keep um, money in cash, which seems to be the easy option that people fall back on, they're going to suffer from punitive interest rates and the growth will be minimal at best and that worst inflation will completely erode the value of their savings. Then again, the charges on cash are low, if not non-existent, and the flexibility of access is high. And then what are the various ISA options that are out there? It seems that here is a great opportunity for financial advisors to help the next generation of savers work out what works best for them. Talking to us today about these issues and more are Claire Walsh, Head of Advice Strategy at Schroeder's Personal Wealth, Vanessa from Good With Words, uh, she's an advisor to EQI on CTFs, and Nick Britton, Head of Intermediary Communications at the Association of Investment Companies. Welcome, everyone. Hi. Hi. Let's start, Let's start with the question on what issues the 18-year-old moneyed kids might face and what they might need it for. Um, Vanessa, can I start with you, please? Absolutely. Thank you. I mean, they're, they're a diverse bunch, aren't they? Let's be honest. They're, they're no different from you or I. Um, some of them are obviously concerned that Boomtown was cancelled this year. That seems to be an enormous crisis. But as half of them now are going to college, as you mentioned earlier, they really are switched on when it comes to money. They understand the value of money. They understand that, particularly if they're going to university, they are already investing in their future because they're taking out quite significant debt. Um, so we are in some ways pushing against an open door. Whilst there are those children who will be receiving what they might see as a windfall, they're also quite aware that should they take all the money in cash, once it's gone, it's gone. Um, I think the biggest issue they face is wanting to have some money now, which makes perfect sense. As one, as one student said to me, I would really like the opportunity to be able to afford cheese this term. <laughs> um, 
and th but they also are aware that they need to put money aside if they're ever going to have the opportunity to be homeowners mm -hmm. if they're going to um, be able to afford a decent retirement so in some ways what whilst there's you know there's they're out there thinking that yep yeah, i do understand that there is a need to put money aside the bigger issue is they're not confident about which way to turn Mm -hmm. Absolutely, Claire. Is that your uh, is that your experience so far with advising clients who've got young children or eighteen well, year old? Um, I was going to say actually, sort of, I'm going to take a contribute, Vanessa. Um, I don't think most young people do know how to manage money. I think um, some. I think it's a very mixed bag. Um, you know, there was um, there was a big survey out um, that got a lot of publicity last year, which was showing what was the what were the top top life skills people wish they'd learn in school and didn't and top of the pack was um budgeting it was um how to get on the property ladder it was um what to do with, um how to take out loans and how to manage debts and i think um particularly i think if you come from a very poor background often you've watched your parents struggle and you you're maybe aware that money's really important um, at the other end of the scale, if if you if your parents are reasonably affluent and you haven't had to worry about money, I think often you can find that parents don't they they just take care of everything, and then suddenly you're eighteen, um, particularly if you've gone away to university, you have to get into debt. You've probably taken on debt. You're able to get credit cards, and unless you've been um, practicing those skills for a young age, um, you know when I was at university, a lot of people went quite off the rails and, and racked up massive debts really quickly. Um, so. I think it's um, the, there's a real mixed bag there, and um, I guess my counsel to parents um, is about trying to get um, talk to their children from a really young age and, and start them on sort of budgeting um, habits um, from from when they're really from when they're really little and build up from there. Excellent, thank you. Well, Nick, you're you're uh, uh, very fond of education, aren't you? This is uh, kind of your bag. What what are your feelings on this? Yes, um, I, I suppose. Um... I, I would concur with a lot of what Vanessa and Claire have said. Um, we can't treat all 18-year-olds as if they're the same in, in their personality or in these circumstances. And, and the other big disparity is going to be how much they've actually got in their child mm -hmm. trust fund. Because I, I believe £250 was contributed by the government. It was 500 for lower-income families. And if that hasn't been added to over the years, then potentially we're not talking about something that's going to be a very big windfall at all. And then you've got perhaps, um, you know, weighing against that if they're going to university, that the prospect of them getting into, you know, 40 or 50 grand's worth of debt uh, by, by the end of that. So the, 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 the temptation may be, um, you know, if it's not a large amount of money to just, you know, spend it instantly because it doesn't seem like a lot compared mm -hmm. to the amount of debt that they are going to rack up. So, so that kind of um, psychological side of it, uh, of trying to, you know put a put a value on this money is it worth more to them now is it worth more to them you know in order to reduce um, the amount of debt they're going to have to take out over the longer term you know even before you start getting into issues about investing and tax wrappers and so on i can imagine a lot of 18 year olds are going to be quite sort of hungry for, for information mm, absolutely and nick if i can stay with you for for a second because we're talking about kids that are hungry for information we've we've heard from both vanessa and claire that there sometimes can be a lack of financial education around it. So young people want to know what to do with their money. What happens if um, an 18 year old says, right, I want to maybe spend a little now, but I want the rest to be invested. How do they even know where to in invest their money? How, how can they, how should they be investing their money? 
Mm. Well, that that's a, that would be a good start, wouldn't it? If they already had that kind of clear idea, you know, I want to spend some, I want to invest some. So that's that's you've got a great kind of start there. So um, they're already making that kind of um, decision. Um, and then I suppose, really, from from the advisor's perspective, you know, this is an opportunity, really. Um, to sit down with um, the the eighteen year old. I mean, I, I didn't know much about investment at eighteen actually, and I was quite interested in in saving money actually. Um, but I I didn't have any background in investing, maybe family background in finance. So so if you know if you'd asked me what the stock market was, you know, I, I probably wouldn't have had much of a clue. I probably would have thought it was something for people who were you know very in the know, or or maybe even some kind of a racket, you know, a bit like gambling. Um, and it it wasn't until you know I was in my mid twenties that I started to realize it was something that could actually um, work for me. So I, so I think, um, you know, a big part of the education has just got to be around, you know, the different asset classes and how they work. And I think only then can you could you sort of talk about maybe putting some of this money in equities, which which I'm sure we would all think might be a good place if they're putting this money away for the medium to long term. Um, but they but they need to kind of understand what that entails. And I think mm. that's not going to come naturally to a, to a lot of 18 year olds. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and I'm probably going to be showing my age now, but I also remember at university when I first went, uh, a kid from a, a relatively wealthy background, he said that he'd taken out a loan at a very, very minimal interest rate, a student loan. And that money, he said he was going to put into a Tessa, which was going to deliver a certain return. Uh, I can't remember how much. And he would have money at the end of it. And I had had no idea about this. You know, at 18, I was not I was never going to work in finance when I was 18. I was adamant about that. Um, so that idea that he knew that he could put money in, get some money out at the end of it, pay off his loan and have a cash lump sum was, you know, that that was a, a real revelation to me about what to do with the money. But obviously, um, Tessa's don't exist. But, but how can kids invest their money now? Vanessa, you've obviously done a lot of um, talking with young people and with experts about this. Um, absolutely. I mean, I think... Um, in fact, I've got a, a quote here, which is, uh, to me, pretty poignant, because as you're saying, at 18, we weren't facing with our older generation. We didn't have to take out loans. So they are more cash aware. They're more aware of the, of the value of money. Um, I've, I've got this um, one one of the people, young people I talked to who said, I think what motivates my generation is just the fear that we won't be able to provide for ourselves. Most, ones, want to, most of us want a house, but know how difficult it will be to get one. And we all know that we need a retirement fund but don't know how to start building one. So they don't know, they know what their needs are, but they don't necessarily know which way to turn. Um, but thinking about that 250 pound, which was like a kickstart um, from the government up to 500 pound, as Claire said, if, if for lower income families, I hope would, that would be to start um, kickstarting a, a habit really. But also as Claire has highlighted, unfortunately we know from research from Money Advice Service that most young people imitate whether that's good or bad the financial behaviors of their parents mm. so there is a kind of uphill struggle there if we think that we can just at 18 provide a sort of a suite of leaflets that's probably not going to do the job um claire is absolutely right i think financial um information and education really should start in school and if people have been recently excited about rishi sunak giving you 10 pounds towards eating out mm. they should be absolutely delirious about the lifetime isa as far as I'm concerned, but there are too few people, and that includes parents who are aware of it. Mm. So you could take your CTF, you could actually take some mix and match. You know, EQI allows you to sort of like take some in cash, put some into a lifetime ISA, and more, and just as importantly, I think, 
the idea of you suddenly overnight becoming an adult is a bit risible as you were a child the night before yeah you can keep an advisor on your account or a parent or a grandparent someone you trust to help you in that journey because as nick says it's, it's a pretty long tail learning to be confident about what to invest in you know learning as you said what's an asset class i wouldn't have known that at 18. so i think there is a kind of responsibility from our industry to kind of talk about products like lifetime ice so with that 25 percent bonus that could be a thousand pounds every year from the government pretty rare thing working mm. towards what that young man told me which is um, a first time a home or your retirement so i think um although the young people are they're aware of what their needs are there is still definitely a gap in terms of where do they start yeah absolutely claire can i bring you in there what what, what are your thoughts and we obviously you've heard um, your fellow panelists talking there and um, some advocates of the Lifetime ISA. I also have one. Got there just a month before my 40th birthday, so I was happy about that. Well done. <laughs> um, so I think coming back to what I was saying about, um, I think it's about developing those habits early on, ideally. So, um, you know, there's there's things like, there's really fun apps that you can have, um, that you can give to young children where they can, you can give them their pocket money and they can start to, um, you know, I've got friends who've done this where they give their kids, you know, they give a seven year old sort of 10 pound a week and they use that for not just for um, it might be for all sorts of discretionary purchases. And then as they get older. Um, so my parents did this with me, not with an app, obviously, but, um, uh, you know, from age 12, I had my own clothing budget. Um, so if I wanted something, if I wanted to save it all up for some fancy trainers, I could. But um, um, I had to manage that. And I think that sort of basic budgeting things is is giving you that foundation I think again coming back to, to suddenly be 18 and have the options of debt and investments is quite a lot to deal with and you have to get used to just that sort of basic budgeting in the first sense um I think you know Vanessa was sort of um touching on um for, for young people today I think they probably do feel um like life seems more stressful than perhaps you or I when we were that age this morning um mm. Um, it seems like a harsher world they're coming into, um, and um, but um, everybody's situation is going to be different. And they're, um, you know, I, I dealt with quite a lot of clients who um, they were taking care of university children. You know, their their offspring didn't need to contribute to that, so they were looking at their sort of um, their saving. You know, the um, junior rises and um, were then being used as that's a long term. You know, as Vanessa was saying, a sort of start of a deposit for a house potentially. Um, and I think perhaps one of the challenges not knowing exactly what the timeframes are, but yeah. somebody has been engaged in their savings. Um, and I had a couple of, um, I got this a couple of stats. Um, so whilst the initial contribution from the government was 250 or 500 for low income families, um, there's, um, and a lot, there's, there's something like, um, 700,000, um, child trust funds that have not been touched at all, mm. but Turn that round, that's, you know, 5.3 million that have been touched. So there have been a lot of people making contributions and increasing these. And um, over 50% of the child trust funds have over £5,000 in them. And over 27% have over 20000 So there are a lot of young people with quite substantial sums there. They're not all going to need to cash those in. So then um, ideally starting, if, if, you, if you're a parent, starting to talk to your children about investment options. Um, and... I think um, you know financial education could be better taught in schools, but you're, I don't, I can't imagine they're going to start putting asset classes and investments um, on the curriculum soon. So it's no. for parents in the industry, really. We need to step in and start um, trying to do our bit. Absolutely, and you know, you you raised some really interesting points there, and it's again like um, 
education starts from a long time you know it starts from as early as you can really um but then when you're 18 you don't think about things like longevity you don't think about long-term care i mean heck most 18 year olds don't even think about um, the need for income protection or life insurance or critical illness cover um, because they are young they're healthy they're fit the world is their oyster even if the world is a pretty scary place right now, they are looking forward, you know, in a couple of years, there's bright hope where they're able to do X, Y, and Z, or go to uni, or come out of uni, get a good job. Um, and I, I think when a lot of teenagers have this kind of very rose-tinted spectacle view of the world, um, that it will be all right for them eventually. I remember in 2017, Santander put out a survey of 16-year-olds from schools across England, and um, it said, what sort of salary would you expect when you graduate? And about 60% of them said they would expect to get a salary of £70,000 as their first job. And I, <laughs> I know we're all laughing here, you know, uh, you know and I, they just assumed that that was the basic salary. And that wasn't even, you know, they didn't even think that they'd immediately become um, a hospital consultant or something. You know, they, they were just thinking, yeah. Out, probably get 70 80,000 pounds there's a kind of unrealistic expectation and they don't have any concept of what long term really means they might think well you know you have a five-year plan to get a good job and maybe get a house but as we all know actually those five-year plans could end up being 10 20 even 30 year plans mm. so i mean how do you kind of impress on an 18 year old that long term means more than a year um nick can i start with you on that that's um that's a classic question about the long term isn't it that's a phrase we're very very fond of um in this industry and yeah i i, I don't know what it means to an 18 year old i mean certainly thinking back to me my, my long terms probably wasn't even a year um so i i think you know starting to talk about um what people want to to achieve you know their goals what they're looking at i mean they may be unrealistic but it's but it's good to get those conversations um started mm -hmm. you know do they have you know a plan to travel the world are they quite grown up in their thinking are they already thinking about you know uh, a deposit on a house um car whatever so so talking about their kind of the, the, their goals their general life goals their financial goals um seems to be a good place to start and and then kind of trying to put on those goals a sort of time horizon and then i think you know, you, you've got to kind of tackle if it, I mean, it'd be great if this was tackled in school, as Claire said, we've got to assume, though, that, that you know, maybe it, they're not very familiar with the idea of the time value of money with inflation, getting some idea of, of that across. Um, and then, the, you know, the, the conversation could develop into, you know, how you can achieve those goals. But I think that that seems to be a good place to start to kind of engage them. Makes it clear. Um, so I, I was just reminded of, um, I watched um, some sort of docu documentary about a young girl. She was the youngest ever national lottery winner. Um, I, I want to say she was 17 and she was from like some housing estate in Scotland. And she really didn't have money and she'd come into this huge amount of money. And as part of that process, they put you together with a financial advisor. And this documentary, the way it was shot was he was sort of going asset classes. Da -da, and he, was, he just wasn't, he hadn't got his audience and he just... And he said, you know, and if you invest, and maybe you can expect to get like 2% net a year over your lifetime. And it was just like, she's just like, go blow it. Like, why, why would I put it with you? And then I can get, I don't know, 30 grand a year or whatever. He just, he didn't, 
And, and I think what I, what I, my anecdote there is not me sleeting under some other finan poor financial advisor, but it is about connecting with somebody. So whether it's a parent, whether it's an industry professional, whether it's, you know, some, uh, some 18 year old tunes into the podcast and uh, listens to us. I think sometimes little nuggets of information, you've got to capture people's imagination. And I think um, when we talk about money in a very abstract way as well, um, you know, it's about what that money can do for you. So if it is that saving for something specific, saving to help you, I think we all keep talking about getting on the property ladder. I don't own property. It's not an aspiration of mine. So um, it's not it's not everyone's dream, I think. But you've got to link it to something that that makes it tangible so that it gets people excited about it. And coming back to the investments, I think, you know, as you said, Simone, someone telling you about investing when he was um, when you were younger, it was it was so foreign to you. You didn't really understand. But I think if somebody you know, explains in simple terms, you buy shares, they give you income as a company owner, wrap those into a collective and somebody's making those choices. And that's how it gets more money than cash. I think young people can, you can quite quickly um, turn the dial and then they go, oh, I get it. Mm -hmm. I suppose it's just finding lots of different ways to try and connect with them to to, to, to make those links. I say, Vanessa, you're, you're often connecting with, with young people. Would you agree with what Clara said? Absolutely. I mean, I, I did catch myself groaning on about tax efficiencies and watching people glaze over. Not unsurprising. Thank heavens for the rule of six or whatever it is now, so I can stop bothering so many young people in a room. <laughs> um, that one of them quite rightly said it really, really isn't about the money. It's about the independence. And I thought, of course it is. It's all. It's never really about that pot that we always talk about. It is about what can that get me? You know, as Claire said, Lots of people that aren't interested in, in becoming. Um, it's amazing how many are. I was talking to someone who's 18, has already been in the world of work for 18 months and has got that plan, ironed out, knows exactly when, eight years time, renovate a house. But loads of people don't want that. Lots of people say, I might want to travel the world mm -hmm. and maybe open a cake shop. And that's what money's for, isn't it? It's about funding those opportunities. Um, yeah. Moving out of your childhood bedroom is a big one. It really is. Um, but I think... There is a fault there from our industry. I, I mean, I do admire the way that EQI said, look, you know, it, investing should be democratized. It, nobody should rule it out. We've got all those charts. We look at those graphs. We look at a hundred year of stock market history and we know the difference between just leaving your money in a savings account and investing it. We see that what a huge opportunity it is. But I think we have to take some responsibility here and say, well, we're failing to communicate that properly. And um, it absolutely is not for everyone because you need to take a degree of responsibility. You're going to be making those investment decisions and you have to back yourself in that way. Um, but we also don't want people to rule it out because even if, you know, people don't see pensions as high risk, but of course they're an investment product as well. Um, so although we want that door open to people, we are still failing to talk the right language. Mm, absolutely. And you hit the nail on the head. I've often used the word democratizing in, in investment because we have the tools we have the apps and we have the information out there that should be able to help all people from all backgrounds um, get on the savings ladder um, if I can come back to you Vanessa and then go to Nick and then to Claire how can we tie up tech and the information and good solid financial advice out there to perhaps try and get the attention of these 18 year olds unless I can start with you then go to Nick and then to Claire. In some ways I mean I, I'm not going to cast um, any sort of aspersions looking around the room here but a lot, we all seem to be some way off 18 and I think we are kind <laughs> of 
disadvantaged by that because we are very much talking to digital natives. I sent one of my contacts, I sent a huge screed of questions to them, again, too many. Um, and uh, her, her inquiry came back, is there an app? You know, again, we have to remember that they are, you know, accessing information, the wealth of information is meat and drink to them. So yes, technology definitely has a role to play. So all those kind of, I mean, I think we're all pretty good when we're in the room with people. We young people are smart, they get it quickly, they get the opportunity quickly. Then they want to know, well, what do I do then? What's the right type of product? Let's just say it's a lifetime license. Well, that's great, I've opened one. What on earth do I do then? Well, then you know, then you have to start maybe talking to them about funds. So there are all those steps. So it very much is down to us, I think, to start to look at using the technology that they are used to, that literally snackable information. They, they are hoovering a huge amount of information, but to us, it's it's quite, I'm not again trying to be negative here, but it's quite thin. The idea of them sitting down and reading Middlemarch is frankly ludicrous, but they can tell you so much about the whole world of literature because of the way that they hoover information. And we have to start to work with that. It's, it is really up to us to make sure that uh, if we want this generation, this generation, I, I think, know that they can't really rely on the state and they can't really rely on the lottery. They understand that it is down to them then it is up to us, I think, to make sure that the information we present them to is in the language that they talk. Absolutely. Um, Nick, snackable information from the investment industry. How easy is that? How compliant is that? Oh, well, oh, gosh, don't get me started on compliance. <laughs> OK, we won't. That's another one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, OK, well, I think um, there's obviously there's a huge range of apps um, around to help you with things like budgeting. There's a huge range of, of information out there in, in all sorts of formats on, on um, investing. You know, we, we've produced videos at the AIC. We've cut them down into one minute chunks. That's, that's all great. Um, but I still think, you know, from the advisor's perspective, you know, sitting down in a room with someone, as Vanessa said, um, just, just offering this opportunity to sit down in a room with someone who is not your parent, um, but can offer, you know, a certain amount of empathy um, guidance, I think is hugely valuable and um, shouldn't be underestimated. And, you know, just um, making the offer, now it may not be accepted, of course, but j just the fact that you've made the offer in, in, in quite a genuine spirit, I think would, would down, go down very well with the, with the children and the parents and potentially be a, immensely valuable to, to a young person who's starting out on their journey of getting informed about all of this stuff. Mm. Excellent. Thank you very much, Nick. So, Claire, people buy people. Will an 18-year-old buy financial advisors? Oh, absolutely. Um, so, a few years ago, I used to work as, um, alongside being a financial advisor, I used to work as a facilitator for um, an organisation who did sort of um, corporate social responsibility things where they took employees from big corporates into classrooms and we delivered a, a one-day programme called Money, 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 which was for GCSE age pupils. And it was all about helping them to understand the world of work. Now, the big corporates, people like um, Legal in General, um, Lloyds were big clients. They would use it as data gathering exercises. And one of the, one of the, one of the main things which we were all interested in that came out of this was young people said, that they did want they did want to speak about if they were going to buy financial advice or get advice on it they wanted it face to face now mm -hmm. i'm not seeing what vanessa said i think it's about different things at different points people you know we hear this all the time that as consumers we are becoming increasingly demanding we want so i i think for the big decisions in life people will still want that face to face 
um, discussion with somebody, but then they want to be able to, if they want to do something quick and easy, they want to be able to access it on their phone or an app. And it's having that range of options. I think, um, you know, your question to next sort of hit on, I feel like one of the main, we've got, we've got all of this capability is there. I think one of the main challenges, you can set up an ISO, a junior ISO online, but what, what investments do you pick and how do you do that? And, you know, the regulator has so much, um, we're, we're obliged, the industry is obliged to give people so much information that uh, I can imagine it's like, you know, picking through um, how do you see the wood for the trees? And there is this gap between, obviously, I think it'd be very rare for many young people to have the sort of level of wealth that they can engage a financial advisor. Um, so again, it's about how as an industry we help uh, dem democratise democratize this. And I guess at Shoulders Personal Wealth, we're doing that by trying to engage our clients in helping their children and bring through the next generation. And then I think, you know, there's, I think apps have a big part to play, but I realise it may still be quite daunting for people getting started. Indeed. So it could be a daunting process, but also a very exciting process. Um, I'm sorry, but actually this is all we've got time for right now. And um, hopefully if there are any 18 year olds watching us, uh, do follow some signposting to Good Financial Advice. The PFS has a list of uh, financial advisors out there for you. But I do want to thank our panellists, Claire, Nick and Vanessa, for taking the time to speak to us. Shortly after this advert break, we'll be moving to the second part of our podcast, where we will be joined by FT Advisor reporters Amy Austin and Imogen Chu, who will talk about some of the week's big breaking stories. Moving on from our talk on children's education and the Child Trust Fund, we have two reporters from FT Advisor and Financial Advisor, Imogen Chu and Amy Austin, who are going to be talking to us about some of the things hitting the headlines over the past weeks and the reaction in the advice industry to those things. Um, obviously, this is a perennial question, isn't it, about scams. Um, there's still a rise in fraud and reported fraud cases across pensions and investments. And this is despite everything that the government has said it's doing. Uh, guys, what's not being done that should be? Uh, is this a losing battle? Um, I just think, you know, at the moment it's kind of all talk. You know, we can talk about scams until we're blue in the face, but there hasn't been, you know, any hard-hitting action. I mean, there's been task force set-ups, you know, there's this new inquiry uh, from the Work and Pensions Committee that's out now. So we're moving in a in the right direction, but you know, there's nothing concrete that has happened. You know, we're going to introduce an, a screening system for all pension newsletters or something. I don't know what you can do. Mm -hmm. I'm not on these task force meetings, <laughs> um, but something has to be done. You know, concrete. Mm. Otherwise, it's just talking. You're absolutely um, right, Amy. And that the important thing, obviously, is that we have proper punishments in place for known and convicted scammers. But quite often, the scammers are based offshore. We know that some of them have been operating from call centres in, in Malta or um, even further afield. So you've got interjurisdictional um, task forces that have to be employed then. And, and how do you really stop the scams? Imogen, have you got, you got a view on this? Yeah, I mean, well, just going off Amy's point there um it kind of feels as well like even when something concrete is done that 
the enforcement and the monitoring isn't there um, to kind of pick it all up. So uh, if you take kind of like the mini bond adverts as an mm. example, they're not kind of a scam, but they are a high risk investment that was advertised to standard investors. And yet you see multiple examples of mini bonds being advertised on the internet. Um, you see multiple kind of 7% per year fixed um, returns all over the place and yet this is stuff that the fca has put in rules to try and fight so um it's kind of like yeah the first step is doing something concrete but then even when that's done the, but the battle's not won um so yeah it, it does feel like we've got a long old way to go absolutely we definitely need some uh, better education on scams or high risk investments you know if it looks too good to be true it probably is i mean these, these that's an old totem that's been around since even before noah was a boy people still don't seem to to acknowledge that they still mm -hmm. think maybe it's maybe i'm the exception maybe it's british exceptionalism we all think that we're going to be the exception to work out for us i think it's the environment we're in we're in a, an environment of massively low interest rates you can barely you can't beat inflation with just a standard savings account even returns from the stock market aren't unless you're in massive us growth tech stocks aren't that attractive so the second you kind of have this like low returns environment people are going to be more um enticed by stuff that potentially they otherwise wouldn't kind of blink, wouldn't look twice at. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Teak plantation in Costa Rica. Yes, please. Um, <laughs> I'll, have, I'll have some of that. Don't exactly. invest in anything you don't know. Amy, talking about not investing in things you don't know about, um, we had a lot of advisors quite upset today um, when they got letters from a, a strange email address thinking that they were being scammed, didn't we? Yeah, they thought they were being scammed by the FCA, but it turns out it was actually the legit FCA. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, yeah, they they got it. Um, the new COVID uh, survey warning landed in their inbox this morning. Um, and advisors took to Twitter to have a bit of a, you know, a moan or to see what was out there, what other advisors were doing. Um, and it was from the email address fca at fcanewsletters.org.uk. Um, which they kind of didn't expect. So they were a bit like, oh, scam. This is definitely a scam. And it is just one of the FCA's many emails, which, you know, is a problem in itself. They have different emails for different alerts or different, you know, news. And that's helpful for advisors, you know, who are on the lookout for scams because this is a mandatory thing they have to reply to. So if mm. they see it as a scam and ignore it, you know, be action taken against them and they're going to turn around and say to the regulator well we thought that was a scam we were doing what you tell us to do and to ignore scams and so i don't know what the answer to that is maybe the fca needs to figure out a way of getting i don't know two-factor authentication or something like that on their emails where they're you know these important mandatory things and asking for a lot of personal data and data requests mm -hmm. etc just so advice are you know comfortable sending all their data across yeah of course and, and and it just seemed that you know quite a lot of the financial advisors were finding it in their spam um folders as well when they're going through it so they could have missed it just by accident because it seemed to uh, mm. be coming from a, a, an unusual email address imogen yeah i mean it does seem like the essay could do something um as simple as 
once their the first batch of surveys goes out they put a little notice on their website saying financial like this is the um category of firm we're um emailing and this is the title of the of the um alert or the the survey or something just so a place where kind of advisors and other firms can go check on the fca website to see whether they're expecting a, an email of this sort so something like that could help but no i do feel really sorry for advisors in this i mean it's not that it's not like the fca has never been um that fraudsters haven't tried to copy the FCA before. Yeah. Advisors have got many emails just in this year alone from the FCA, uh, purporting to be the FCA. So, um, yeah, so the advisors are right to be cautious about it. Um, but, uh, yeah, hopefully the FCA can come up with some kind of, like, check system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we certainly need plenty of check systems in place, not just at the FCA, but at government, at Whitehall. We've... Uh, seen even more uncertainty over Brexit deal and trade talks over this over the past week with uh, sort of the ensuing um, hiccups on stock markets. Um, how much more uncertainty can the stock markets take, Imogen? Yeah, so I guess the, the important thing to note here really is that the market expresses its view on Brexit uh, via sterling rather than kind of the, the FTSE so the price of the pound is a better place to look to see how people are reacting to Brexit um, for example when Brexit kicked off again and the government hinted it would override the withdrawal agreement uh, last week and put trade talks at risk sterling shed nearly one percent of its value against the US dollar uh, but what's even more confusing is that this is actually good for the FTSE 100 yeah. Because so many companies sell most of their stuff overseas, so a weak pound makes their products cheaper to overseas buyers. And if they're selling stuff in dollars, then when they return that back to sterling, they get a better rate on it. So, um, uh, so yeah, so this is obviously quite confusing and it makes it really difficult to predict what might happen if a no-deal Brexit does go ahead. Yeah, because of course. Obviously, on the one hand, you've got the pound's going to tank so FTSE will likely rise, FTSE 250 will tank as well, much more kind of sensitive to domestic um, talks. But um, but then on the other hand, no deal limits trade deals. So mm. would FTSE 100 companies be able to trade overseas? So it's, it's actually such a confusing one to try and predict and to even follow, especially when markets seem to be completely priced kind of outside of what's happening mm. on the ground at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. But at least we've got the Japanese to buy some of our cheese. I mean, that, that that's pretty good going. Yeah, I mean, we already had that deal for the EU, but <laughs> it's uh, new for Britain. <laughs> there you go. Send them a bit of carefully. That that's uh, that's how the market should adopt this carefully. No, sorry. Um, Amy, <laughs> Amy, cheesy puns aside. <laughs> cheesy puns aside. What's your view on this? Um, I just, you know, from my kind of point of view and from what I cover, you know, it's a worry to pension investors mm. um you know we've already had volatility within pensions already this year so i'm not sure how much more people can have you know watching their pensions and the thing is i think before covid people weren't you know checking their pensions as much but i think now you know they're looking at statements they're on top of it a bit more so you know if markets do drop or you know something does happen in their pensions they're a bit more like why is this drop why is this drop mm -hmm. and it's like panic 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 let's take it get out and that is just not, you know, that's not what you should be doing. So that's my main concern when, you know, markets fall. Yeah, it's that sort of uncertainty and sort of investor education piece that we need to be uh, 
uh, we need to be looking at. Um, talking about sort of pension funds, I, I was quite happy to note that Columbia Threadneedles pension uh, property property fund had opened up because uh, one of my old pension funds has got that inside it. Um, that's a disclaimer for in case anyone cares. Um, what do we make of this? Property <laughs> funds are now starting to open up uh, a little bit more. Is that, is that a good thing that open-ended property funds are starting to lift the gates or are we just waiting for a little bit of a lifting before they clamp down again? Uh, yes, nature is healing. Property funds are reopening. <laughs> um, yeah, it's um, it's hard to say whether it's a good thing or not. Really, like for for investors who have their cash kind of trapped in those funds, um, it's obviously a good thing that they now have access to those assets. Um, whether or not they were kind of concerned by the suspension or not, my my main concern is that um, while the funds were suspended they were kind of immune to what was happening in the property market elsewhere. And so their performance wasn't necessarily um, kind of actually indicative of how those funds were going to perform. So it'll be really interesting to see now, A, how what their returns are like over the next few months, and B, um, what their redemptions are like. Are like It'll be really interesting to see how, whether these property fund investors are actually as spooked as people have been saying about the FCA's proposed 180 day rule about the fact that people are worried about commercial property given that shopping and offices we don't know what their future is so all of that is really interesting and it's going to be it's hard to say whether it's good or bad really because we just have no idea how what investor sentiment is going to be like yeah absolutely absolutely Amy are pension funds happy uh, maybe the Kent County Council is. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, if you read Financial Advisor last week, you would have seen that I had some unhappy advisors. Um, and the fact, you know, with this property fund suspension, their clients couldn't transfer out. Mm. Um, and they were looking to do this transfer, you know, several months and they were told too late and it was a whole debacle. So I'm sure that they will be ecstatic that they can now move their clients funds and, you know, go ahead with the transfer that they were looking to do because, you know, it wasn't just that you can't pull funds out of here. It, it stopped so much, you know, certain providers, it stopped you from transferring and it stopped mm -hmm. you from, you know, doing what you wanted to do with your pension. So, um, yeah, I think a lot of, a lot of people will be happy. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I, I sort of threw Kent County Council, and that's unfair. That was uh, in relation to to Woodford. But this whole idea of gating funds, so you can't get your money out and you can't put any money in. Um, it, it's it is a it is a big thing for investors. You know, you you have this fear. What do I do if I can't get my money out or I can't get my pension out? Do I miss out on a really good transfer window that perhaps I had or? Um, am I going to find that the value of that investment is severely depleted when I do get it out? I mean, these are these are valid questions, aren't they, for pension fund investors? Yeah, and definitely, especially at this time, you know, pensions are so important because that's where people get in finances from if they're really, you know, really strapped for cash or, you know, just really need funds. You know, their pension's the perfect place to go to, so it's important. Yeah, I think, to be honest, I think the FCA is doing the right thing um, <laughs> by proposing the this 180-day um, wait, potentially, for people to get, their, to get their cash, because it just, you're already starting from like a worst-case scenario. The investor mm. is told from the beginning, it's going to take six months, you're not going to know what 
the value is when you request it you're not going to know what the end value is going to be um but it's kind of needed in order to to curb that mismatch that has caused all of these suspensions um so yeah no i think you know we're moving in the right direction with just talking about just how a liquid property is and not kind of um hoping investors understand that there's this suspension risk and um hoping that that the mismatch will never cause an issue which i think has is obviously just not the case yeah and hopefully as i think you you you've reported um in weeks past the fact that pension funds are long-term by nature sort of perhaps means that those that have invested in open-ended property funds maybe have a, a very different idea or understanding about why that is in the long-term pension portfolio and perhaps are less likely to want to do very quick redemptions or move hot money around. So may, maybe it might affect pension investments uh, a little bit less uh, dreadfully than it has uh, the retail investor. As we know, retail investors like to move money around like it's a hot potato anyway. So uh, mm. they just want to stick it all in cash or gold right now. So. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. I mean, I'm a retail investor, but I, I, I like to think that I'm old enough to not uh, not, not be panicking. Um, talking of panicking, we've got quite a lot of people who are justifiably worried about what happens with, with the end of the furlough scheme and what's going to happen as we enter October. Um, guys, what sort of uh, worries are people having as they're facing this uh, the end of the, the, the support scheme and perhaps a, a return to work or not even work what, what about their health what about their wellness yeah i mean it's it's a minefield for anyone in a job that um where they've been furloughed and they're unsure whether that job is still going to be waiting for them at the end of the furlough scheme um there's no doubt that the scheme has been great for um people whose job literally just had to be put on pause um but there will be uh, many people currently on the furlough scheme that will be unemployed i think the bbc reported yesterday that planned redundancies are at twice the rate of the last recession um so we are going to see a see big unemployment and i think you know that's that's actually that's very very scary for a lot of people um so yeah it, it, it's hard to stay positive about 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 un unemployment in the uk really no but it all adds uh, adds unfair yeah. uncertainty doesn't it amy yeah, well, the Treasury Committee, um, I believe it was on Friday last week, um, you know, they've called for um, the Chancellor to look at a targeted extension of the furlough scheme because, you know, they were arguing that you can't actually see, you know, how it's, you know, benefiting some people because, you know, they're on furlough, but they might come off furlough and still have a job to go to, um, whereas other people will come off furlough and may be made redundant or will not, you know, be able to go back to work. So a targeted furlough scheme to help the people that you know most need it would be really really helpful for some employers maybe you know the ones that are in you know, you know like hospitality and stuff i'm sure they're have they've been really hard um so that's definitely something um the treasury could look at but you know they, the treasury committee was quite um critical in that the actual treasury um ignored their last recommendations in their last covid um like support report um so we'll have to see you know they they might ignore this one they might you know just think you know what we've been hemorrhaging cash and we need to you know that it has to stop at some point so now is the time but it's not just money though is it i mean we're talking about 
people who've had a, a high incidence of uh, mental ill health as a result of lockdown, as a result of COVID. Um, I was talking to a lady today um, who's a mental health expert. Before COVID, one in four people reported um, a mental health concern um, or suffering from mental ill health. And that has now become um, just under one in two. Wow. So, so many people have been struggling and if their financial situation is bad, that's an extra worry on top of them. Um, and then of course, you know, what happens with their pension contributions, if they stop paying into a pension or if their employer reduced contributions, these are all worries that people have right now and for the future. Yeah, I mean, it's been um, it's been pretty widely reported, hasn't it, that financial well-being has such an important part in a person's general well-being. So um, I think targeted and structured support schemes from the government are, are very much crucial as we move away, even if it's not a furlough scheme in kind of the nature that we know it at the moment, but um, better support for unemployment because so much of it has been coronavirus induced kind of over the past few months. Um, I think the government will have a lot to answer for if it doesn't provide the support that these people need. Um, another thing I was thinking about just then actually was uh, the well-being and the mental health of people that are now being asked to go back to work. So um, we have a lot of people, rightly or wrongly, um, who think that you know, I can do my job from home, therefore why should I deal with the stresses of um, going back to the offices? And then there's pressure from the, the, the government are trying to apply and maybe pressure from the employer. And maybe if they don't feel safe to go on the trains or to commute. And I think there's going to be kind of a crux there on mental health as well, where people have kind of gotten used to a standard of life work balance that maybe they feel like that's going to be taken away. Um, so there's those people as well that I think uh, mental health practitioners should be very aware of. Absolutely. Amy, what do, what do you think on Um So we have the new money and pension service now, you know, we've got that. And this is the, you know, opportune moment for them to show off, you know, what they can do and how they can help people. That's what they're there for, you know. They're there for pensions guidance and debt advice, and, you know, helping people with their finances, you know, providers do point people to this, but maybe there needs to be, you know, more campaigns out there run by government or something that, you know, shows, you know, maps is there and it will help you and you can have a phone call with someone or you can talk online. There is many ways that they do help. So I think that that is definitely something they could look to do. Excellent. And that again comes back down to education, which is what we started this uh, section of the podcast on the education of people about scams and about how to protect their wealth so we've looked at everything protecting your health and your wealth and your your mental your mental health as well so uh, thank you very much amy thank you very much imogen for taking the time to speak to us and uh, good luck with all the reporting that you're doing in the future and i also want to thank you for listening until next time take care Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.